Those of you who, who do know me and has been around me over this past year uh, know that my family's had a good bit of loss this year. I had um, my father passed away back in June, and two of my uncles and one of my aunts passed away before that. So it's just been a, a year of a lot of loss in my family and just hard to, to deal with sometimes. Um, my Uncle Terry is one of those who passed away. Uh, my Uncle Terry had, was born with cerebral palsy. It's a condition that is usually caused by some brain damage that occurs during birth and can be very severe. It can be very, uh, very mild. His was pretty severe in that he, um, for most of his high life, had pretty limited use of his body. You know, he could usually feed himself uh, and things like that, but beyond that, he had to have assistance. He, he lived in a nursing home most of his life. Um, he was in a wheelchair um, basically from the time he was a toddler on. Uh, he lived in a nursing home almost all this life, and his, and his muscles, because he didn't use them, had atrophied. So he was very thin, um, you know, from head to toe, really. But his mind was fine. There was, there was no impairment in his, in his cognitive ability. Um, he loved movies, and I sorted through hundreds of them after he passed away. My wife can tell you it was boxes of DVDs, Blu-rays, VHS, the whole nine yards, um, he also loved music. He just had a great music collection, and so um, we went through those, and just people would give him music, and, you know, for Christmas, we'd always give him a Walmart gift card so he'd go buy some music, and uh, he loved music. Um, but even with, you know, and he lived into his 60s, which for somebody with cerebral palsy is quite long. They, they usually do not live that long. Um, but even after all those years, there were things that we discovered about him after he passed away. Um, he wrote poetry. And you're like, you know, we're going through his stuff, and we find this poetry that he'd written. He would, he would say it to somebody, and they would type it up for him. He had some friends uh, that would come visit him at the nursing home and would do that. Um, and one of his poems that we found was him begging one of his friends to follow Jesus. And that's just like, wow. You know, he was like, I really hope that you'll follow Jesus so that we can be together in eternity and all this. And just like, wow, that's, we're like, just, you know, we knew that he went to church. We knew that he was a believer, but um, there was still a lot that we didn't know about him. And when we come to a passage like we, that we're going to see today, uh, we're talking about a, a man who was lame from birth. My Uncle Terry is one of those folks that I think of that kind of comes to my mind. So that's why I wanted to, to tell you a little bit about him today. Um, this man that I, that I knew my whole life um, was maybe similar to the person we're going to look at here in Scripture today. So we're in Acts chapter 3, uh, and we're going to look at the whole chapter. And um, I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard if, if you have that or want to flip to it in your app. Um, but let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll look at God's Word together. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we can come together. We can sing praises to you. We can pray to you. We can open up your word and be taught by you from it. So, Lord, we ask that you would teach us that your spirit would speak to our hearts and to our minds to hear what we need to hear today. 
Lord, and that it wouldn't just get stored away in a, in a file cabinet somewhere in our minds, but that it would compel us as we, as we leave here and as we walk through every day of our lives. Let us hear your truth here today. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. This would have been in the afternoon. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. We'll stop there for a second. I want you to really picture this. If you're, if you're not familiar with what the temple, what we think the temple looked like at this time, it was a huge, beautiful building. It dwarfed everything else in Jerusalem at the time. It was covered in precious metals and things to where in the afternoon sun, it was just would have, it would have been an amazing sight to see. And at this gate called Beautiful, which was likely covered with gold, silver, or even bronze, and the bronze was considered more beautiful than the gold or silver, there regularly sat a man whose body was far less attractive. His body was atrophied and contorted. And in a world where there were no wheelchairs, there was no welfare or government services like that, there was no modern medicine, you know, but where he sat in the shadow of this temple that was covered with gold and silver, this, this 40-something-year-old man asked for a few pieces of silver or gold in order to survive. He asked for what he knew. He asked for what he understood. And he asked what, for what he had received before when he had gone to ask for things. He, he asked for money, and some people would give him money. This is how he survived. But what he didn't ask for was to be healed. He didn't even consider it a possibility. He, he didn't know who he was talking to, and he didn't know who they followed. He was ignorant. And, you know, that ignorant kind of carries a really negative connotation in our, in our context today. But sometimes you don't know what you don't know. It's just there was no fault here. He just didn't know. He hadn't been told. But he got much more than he asked for. And his healing was immediate and it was complete. He didn't get better over the course of a week or a few months or years through some therapy or something like that. No, he got up immediately. And he was not just walking, he was leaping and he was praising God. His healing was immediate and complete. And I just have to think, we ask for such small things from God sometimes. We ask 
for like this guy did. We ask for what we already know, what we already understand, and what we've received before. And it's only in those unusual circumstances that we ask for more. Or sometimes maybe we don't ask God for anything and we only go to him when we need the big stuff. See, when Jesus healed, he had the authority and he said so. He says, I do this so that you know that I have authority to forgive sins. Now, when the apostles healed, they pointed to Jesus. And you see that in verse 6. He says, but Peter said to you, I do not possess silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. So in this miracle, he pointed to Jesus through that. And he didn't just tell him to get up. He grabbed him. He seized him, grabbed his hand, picked him up, lifted him up. It's that personal touch, you know, that he wasn't afraid to touch this man who was probably pretty low on the social structure of the world. But he picked him up. He grabbed him by the hand and picked him up. You know, this is a pretty exciting scene. You know, I I watched a um, uh, a little bit of a a miniseries that showed this scene uh, a week or so ago. And you just, in the way that people picture it, it's a pretty exciting scene. There was a crowd there. You see this miracle, something that you don't see every day. And I, and I think if something like that were to happen in this room today, none of us were ever to forget it. And I don't think any of us would ever be the same afterwards. It would be one of those things that probably to our dying day we would remember. Remember that time we saw that guy who was lame and he was healed? I don't think we'd ever forget that. So this is a pretty exciting scene. So let's keep reading, starting at verse 11. Why he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at us? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Everybody could have gone home, gone home happy if Peter hadn't started talking. You know, they were like, hey, that was pretty awesome. What's for lunch? But no, Peter kind of brings the heat here. He brings the indictment. You have the evidence of this man being healed, but now you have the indictment against the people who were excited about it, who had saw it. You know, because much like with Jesus' ministry, The miracle got people's attention, and it provided supernatural support for Peter's message. Because this wasn't just some guy talking. This was like, oh, we see this miracle. There's something going on here. You see his works and his words working together. Now, Peter introduces the conflict, and the conflict or the tension is really the crime that had been committed in the rejection of in the murder of Jesus, the Messiah. 
And he made a point to say, you know, I'm not teaching a new God, which would have been heresy. If he had started like trying to introduce a different God than what they knew, that would have been heresy. But he says, no, this is the same true God that you've been wor- that the Jews have been worshiping for centuries. This was not a new God. This was, this was the same God. You know, Abraham was the patriarch of the Jews that he mentions in verse 13. The God of our father, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They all knew who Abraham was as Jews. He was the patriarch. He was uh, really the founder that they all looked to. He was the patriarch of the Jews, and they, the Jews, opposed Jesus out of loyalty to the Jews, or loyalty to uh, Abraham and what he represented. Because they were thinking, you're, you're preaching something that doesn't line up with Abraham and Moses, so we got to oppose you. They misunderstood. You know, and what we looked at a couple of weeks ago, at Pentecost, Peter, in his first sermon, made the connection between Jesus and David and all the other, uh, who was another hero of their faith. You know, David was, you know, big time. Everybody knew who David was. But now he connects Jesus to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Samuel, and all the other prophets of the Old Testament. You see, God had been silent for 400 years from the end of the ministry of the prophets that we have recorded in the Old Testament. And during this 400 years, there had been no new revelation. There had been no true word from God in the way that we understand the prophets. And that continued up into the ministry of John the Baptist and of Jesus. This new, uh, this, this new interaction that God had with his people. But during this period of time, without the prophets and without, with any, without any new revelation, the religious leaders became experts on the written word. And they even added to it. They would add all these additional rules to it just to keep people away from breaking uh, God's law. The people trusted and followed their leaders even in this awful heinous crime, criminal act of crucifying Jesus. They killed the long-awaited Messiah, the very person they were so desperately waiting and looking for. A couple of weeks ago, you may have seen on the news or on Facebook the story of a young man who has Down syndrome, and he wanted to go to UGA. He just, that was his thing. But there really wasn't a program for him to, to go to UGA until recently. And so as soon as he heard about it, he applied to it. He said, I don't care how many times I have to apply, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in. And so there's this great video of his mom giving him the letter. And he reads it. He's like, you're a Georgia Bulldog. And he just, he's just elated. He's on Because that's what he'd been waiting for for all these years. That's what he wanted. But what had happened if his mom had thrown away the letter? Or maybe if she had lost it. Or maybe she saw it and she said, you know what, I just don't think that's the right thing for him. He never would have had that joy of knowing that one thing that he always wanted was to go to UGA. Fortunately, he had a good mom who wanted that for him as well and got it to him. See, God glorified Jesus but the people disowned him. And when they were given the choice, you know, when he was at his trial, before he was crucified, and they, 
had this habit of giving one of the uh, prisoners back to the people. They said, well, don't you want Jesus back? And they said, no, give us Barabbas. Barabbas was a terrorist and a murderer. And they said, we would rather have Barabbas than Jesus. Given the choice, they chose a murderer over the author of life. We see in verse 13 through 15. This testimony was harsh. But Peter quickly and tenderly comforts them and offers a path forward. Let's look at that, starting in verse 17. We've had the evidence of the man being healed. We've had the indictment that they were the ones who committed this crime. But here we see the invitation, starting at verse 17. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days, It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first... God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. He starts off in verse 17 saying, he says, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance. Few of us will consistently and willfully do what we know is wrong. Unless we're just just a really dark, sinful person. And even that, we twist in our head to make what we're doing that's wrong seem right in our head. But few of us who really know what's right and wrong will just willfully and consistently do it. We all want to be right, and we want to do what's right. But sometimes we simply don't know what that is. We have our blind spots, like, like this, these folks had about Jesus. And it's understandable you know, he was speaking something that to them sounded contrary to everything they've been taught their whole lives. They didn't recognize the truth. And their rulers didn't help. See at the end of verse 17. It says, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. Kerry uh, Newhoff, who's a, a church leader that I've, I've been reading some lately, he, he put it like this. He said, the Pharisees were to some extent well-meaning people. They studied the law and knew it as well as anyone. Their downfall, among other things, centered on their self-justification and self-importance. But there's evidence that some Pharisees were sincerely seeking God. After all, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, both Pharisees, arranged for Jesus' burial. They were sympathetic to Christ and, from what we can tell, ultimately ended up following Him. Similarly, the mission of the early church was radically advanced by a converted Pharisee, Paul. And yet Jesus condemned the Pharisees for their pride, lack of compassion, and hypocrisy. The irony, of course, is this. 
The people who purported to love God most ultimately killed him when he showed up. You get that? The people who purported to love God most ultimately killed him when he showed up. Jesus recognized this. He recognized the ignorance that people were operating out of. When he was on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Those who were crucifying Jesus were ignorant of who he was and how they should have responded to him. And after Peter appoint, uh, you know, establishes their guilt that says, you are culpable for this crime, he points to forgiveness that's available to him. He's given them the truth and now he's showing the grace that goes along with it. Peter offers the invitation and shows that their own prophets pointed to Jesus. We see in verse, starting in verse 18, he says, But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. And he goes off and he names Samuel and all the other prophets. He mentions all of them and he quotes from Moses here. All these things that pointed forward to Jesus and what must happen to him. He addresses their ignorance. He's saying, I know you don't know this, so I'm going to tell you. And as Jews, they had the privilege of hearing and receiving this message first. Jesus' ministry primarily was among the Jews. And it wasn't until really the... There were obviously people outside of the Jews who became believers and followed God... But his ministry up to this point had primarily been among the Jews. And it wasn't until we have Paul that really does extensive outreach into the Gentile world. So the Jews had the privilege of receiving the message and the invitation first. And we see at the last verse that we looked at here, verse 26. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. They were really the first to hear the message, to know that Jesus had risen. Jesus was the object and source of their entire religion. He was sent to them first, yet they didn't recognize him. But what's awesome is there was grace for their ignorance. But it was still not an excuse for their actions or their continued ignorance. It's kind of like when you get pulled over for going too fast and you say, well, I didn't know that speed limit was 35. It's like, well, that's nice. Here's a ticket. Um, Now, the officer may have some grace and give you a warning, but you're still guilty. Even if you didn't see the speed limit sign for whatever reason, just because you're ignorant of it doesn't mean that you're innocent of it. And here we see in this invitation, we see grace and truth together. That that Jesus, through the words of Peter here, wanted to save those who had killed him. You see that? The very people who had harmed him, who had brought this harm upon him, he wanted to save. Here's the bottom line for me. Ignorance leads to inferior actions. You hear that? Ignorance leads to inferior actions. The Bible uses this interesting term 
when describing intimacy. We, we see it in Matthew chapter 1 when he's referring to Joseph and Mary. He said that until Jesus was born that he did not know her. And I think we understand that he's referring to knowing her sexually because he wanted to make sure that there was no misunderstanding that, she, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that it was, not his, it was not a result of biology, it was a miraculous occurrence. So he uses this, this idea of know or knowing to refer to that. And it's used throughout the Bible. We even see it back in Genesis talking about Adam and Eve. But they also use the term in Genesis to refer to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is, so the idea of knowledge is not just referring to something that's sexual in nature. It's referring to the total experience of knowing. Because obviously Joseph knew Mary before they got married. They were engaged. They were traveling together. They knew each other. But he did not know her, as, the, as kind of the urban slang goes, in the biblical sense, until after Jesus was born. I didn't realize that was like an urban dictionary thing until I was doing a little research. But um, I guess I'm a little sheltered and ignorant in my own way. So we have, but the, I think that's a really beautiful picture of a husband and wife after everything that leads up to it, that, that last bit of intimacy is referred to as knowledge. You know, Courtney and I have been together for over 20 years. We've been married 18 of that. And my knowledge of her is still growing. If it wasn't, we wouldn't have a very healthy relationship. If, if when we got married, I said, I know everything about my wife I need to know, we would probably not still be married. Um, that's just not how you have a good relationship. Uh, one of my, my college friends uh, put it this way in referring to Jesus. He said, Jesus Christ is not a collection of data to be processed. He is a person to be known. You get that? Jesus Christ is not a collection of data to be processed. He is a person to be known. You know, he's, Jesus is not a math equation. He's not an academic subject. He's a person. It's kind of like a celebrity, whatever your, whoever your particular celebrity is. I, I think of a, a certain musician that uh, I'm really a big fan of his stuff. I can get on the internet and find out a lot about him. I can find out what city he lives. I, I know something about his parents. I even found one of his wedding pictures online one time. I'm not, like, <laughs> I'm not the creeper guy, but I just wanted to know if I could actually do that. But So I can know a lot about this guy. But if he were to walk in here or I were to knock on the door of his house and say, Hey, and he's like, Who are you? And it's like, I'm a creepy stalker guy who looked up your address on the Internet. I would know some stuff about him. He wouldn't know anything about me other than that was pretty weird. Um, we certainly wouldn't have a relationship. Um, and it can be that way with Jesus. We can know the Bible. We can know the facts and the data about Jesus and not know Jesus as a person. And here's the awesome thing, is unlike that celebrity who probably has locks on his gates and stuff like that and cameras to make sure that people don't show up, Jesus wants to be known. He sought us out. Frederick Douglass, the, um, 
former slave who, who worked to end slavery in the 1800s, he, he put it this way, knowledge makes a man unfit to be a slave. Miles Davis, the jazz musician um, of our current time, I think echoing what Frederick Douglass said here, says knowledge is freedom and ignorance is slavery. You know, most people sense that there is more to life than what can be directly observed. Most people would call themselves spiritual, even if they don't necessarily identify with a particular faith. They would say that they're spiritual. They realize that there's more to it. I think there's only a small sliver of people who are purely materialistic and existentialist and scientific in their view that think that what we see and observe is all there is. I think that's a very small percentage of people. Most of us are not like that. But we have to figure out how do we go from just being spiritual or thinking that there's more to actually being free? How do we get to know and follow Jesus beyond just learning the facts? Because the facts are important. Don't get me wrong. The facts are important. But how do we go, how do we really know and follow Jesus? Well, for the non-believer, somebody who, who doesn't follow Jesus, who's not even really sure about all this, freedom comes through following Jesus, the Son of God that forgives sin. In John 8, he says, If the Son makes you free, you are really free. You are free indeed. That's where freedom comes from for the non-believer. But you know, I'm right on the edge between kind of two big generational changes. The generations younger than me, we're just not motivated by guilt just not. We can contrast that, and I'm speaking the American sense. You contrast that with the folks in Mexico. I've heard over and over again that when you go to Mexico and say, what would, you know, what would God say to you if you were to die now? You say, I'm going to hell because I'm horrible. That's the mindset. The Americans are just, and generally the opposite. Say, oh, I'm actually a pretty awesome guy. You know, <laughs> That's the way we think of ourselves. But even if we don't realize it, even if we're not motivated by guilt, we're still slaves to sin. Even that pride of saying, you know, I'm a pretty awesome guy, is sinful. And that's why the conviction has to be the work of the Holy Spirit now more than ever. We can't manufacture it because people just don't respond to that. It has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why when we're praying for somebody... That a lot of times is the best thing that we can do because the conviction is going to come from the Holy Spirit. What a lot of folks in our generation and younger really value is freedom. We want freedom in our faith to where we don't necessarily want to be tied to a particular church or a particular set of beliefs to where we might pull from different places to, to do what we think is right for faith. Um, we want freedom in our job, you know, I heard kind of statistic of, of younger folks. It's like, well, what would you say if two years from now you're still working in the same place? He said, well, you know, I'd really hope to have a long-term commitment like that. Two years is considered long-term in a job. For, for it, it is crazy because, and, you know, and I'm, I'm not much better because I've, I've changed jobs more than I ever planned to. But they want freedom in their job. They want freedom in their relationships, you know. People in the younger generation are waiting much later to get married because there's all types of reasons for that. 
But one of them is just this desire for freedom. And they want freedom of location. They want to travel. They want to be able to move. They're less likely to buy a house because they want to be able to kind of go wherever they want to go. So they highly value freedom, but they also value community. And they value having a sense of purpose about what they do. Just having a job is not enough. They want to see that their job is actually making an impact. You know, and we can find some temporary satisfaction in all of those things. But the desire can only be really fulfilled in following Jesus. So if you're a non-believer, freedom only comes from knowing Jesus. Ultimately, freedom, that's the only place it comes from. Now, if you are a believer, it doesn't mean that we always feel like we're free or that we're always free. If you're a believer, freedom comes through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in personal spiritual disciplines. What do I mean by that? When we believe, when we start following Jesus, He gives us, God gives us the Holy Spirit to teach us and to remind us of the words of Jesus. And He also gives us the words to say. So when you go for in front of people and you have to give a testimony of who I am, I'll be with you. I will give you the words to say. It doesn't mean that we don't study and learn these things. But the pressure is not on us. God has said that he would be faithful that through his Holy Spirit will give us the words to say. And then there's the spiritual disciplines. And what I mean by that, I'm talking about things like prayer, fasting, study, times of silence and meditation. We, we don't really have times of silence and meditation in our culture today. You know, after about 30 seconds or a minute, we're, we go a little bit stir-crazy. We're just like, I, I can't handle this. But it's only during those times of prayer, fasting, and study, those times of silence, that's how we hear and recognize the work of the Holy Spirit. If there's always noise, it's hard to listen to God, or God has to speak louder and louder and louder. You know, as the saying goes, pain is God's megaphone. If you don't hear him when he speaks quietly, eventually it gets painful to you hear him. But here's the awesome thing with spiritual disciplines. They're like other disciplines. Think of it like a, a musician or an athlete or, or, or a scientist. Their discipline gives them freedom to perform. And what, what I mean by that is if you're a musician, I have a friend who's a drummer. He's, he's a little bit older than me, but his drumming ability is exponentially beyond mine. Why? Because he's been disciplined over his lifetime to practice and practice and practice and practice, to expose himself to other people, to go to training. And so, and then he plays in a band. So their band practices and practices. That means when they get to actually do a performance, they have freedom in how they do that performance because they're so well rehearsed. They're like, they, they know each other's wavelength. They can do that. Or like an athlete. You know, we watch the Olympics and we all think, I could do that. When you don't realize that these people, many times from preschool, have been training for this. You think of the gymnasts. They start very young. A small percentage of them stick with it all the way to where they're They're not just practicing like a month before the Olympics. You understand? It's year-round. But when they're at that point, when they're at the top of their game, they're well-rehearsed, they're in great shape physically, they can go to the Olympics and have the freedom to put on the best possible performance. 
You know, we watched the football game until late last night. Sometimes there's a lot of luck that's involved in those things. Not really luck, but... But because those players work out at the gym, take care of themselves, they practice over and over again. That's where the coaches come in saying, what drills do we have to do so that we do it a hundred times? That way, the one time that we need it, it's there. That's where the freedom comes from in discipline. A scientist has to know their field before they can come up with those new solutions. Before they can go to the lab and say, I know this, what if we tried this? If you don't know your stuff, I mean, it's like, for me, if you tried to get me to come up with a cure for most any disease, I'd be like, you know, have you rubbed some dirt in it or something like that. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't really know, but because of their discipline and study in their field, they know, they know what to try. So for the non-believer, freedom comes through following Jesus. For the believer, freedom comes through the work of the Holy Spirit and these spiritual disciplines. But here's the great thing is for the world as a whole, Freedom will come in the earthly reign of Jesus. See, in verse 19, back in chapter 3 here, it says, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I understand this to mean that he's referring to the physical presence of the Lord. I don't think in this context he's necessarily talking about a personal presence refreshing or even a corporate refreshing is in the church but he's talking about a full global refreshing and you can see that in verse 21 where he says uh, says whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times he's referring to that day when Jesus will be physically present and as we have in the, in the Lord's prayer your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's going to be a time. Well, let me take a step back here. This lame man that we looked at at the beginning, his physical restoration, him getting the freedom to move, it illustrates the spiritual restoration, the forgiveness that's available to everyone. And it models the full restoration of the earth, free from evil, sin and their effects there'll be time there'll be a time where there'll be no sin there'll be no evil and things will be as God intended it to be from the beginning we often live our lives as if we are ignorant of this freedom and restoration and you know and maybe to some degree we are you know non-believers can live their life as if God doesn't exist you know, have that classic atheism that you know, theism is the belief in God. Atheism is the belief that God does not exist. So many can live their life like that, even though the majority of people will say that they believe that God exists. Or they can believe that Jesus isn't real, or maybe he's just not relevant to them. And I think that's probably a large number of people. But believers... We can live our lives with a type of practical atheism. And what I mean by that is that we'll acknowledge that God and Jesus exist, but when it comes to like the real stuff of our life, we act as if he doesn't. We don't live a life of faith. We, we don't seek him for guidance for all those things. So we can live a life of really practical atheism. 
Or we can kind of, like the church in Revelation chapter 2, we can focus on our works and our doctrine while forgetting our first love. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 2, Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, repent from where you have fallen and remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. That's hard. And that's Jesus speaking to the church at Ephesus. And a friend of mine that I listened to recently thought that for the church in America, that's probably the one that's closest to home for us. But how do we know if we've forgotten our first love? How do we do some self-evaluation here? Well, we look for the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Galatians chapter 5 lists the fruit of the Spirit as this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If we look at our own lives and we don't see those things growing, we're not going to be perfect in all of them. We're still sinful people. But if we don't see those things growing in our lives, we really need to check ourselves. We need to seek God to have those grow in our lives. So maybe you do that and you think, all right, what do I do? What do we do when or if we realize that we've been acting in ignorance, whether it's like the lame man asking for money when he could be healed or the Jews who sought to kill Jesus when he was the one that they'd been looking for for all this time. What do we do when we realize we've been acting in ignorance? Well, in Acts chapter 2 that we looked at a few weeks ago, they repented and it was powerful. Thousands came to follow Jesus. It was this miraculous kickstart of the church after this message, well, we'll look at next week in Acts chapter 4. Well, I, I don't, I'm not going to steal anyone's thunder, but the response was different. Um, see, we can respond by repenting, by changing. Or we can ignore, we can deny it, we can even shoot the messenger. You know, just ask the prophets. Most of them did not end well. Ask the apostles. Most of them did not end well. Acting in ignorance almost always takes us down the wrong path, away from Jesus, from what is right and what is good. It's like if you're lost in the woods and you don't have a map, or you have a compass and the compass is not working properly. When you're lost, like out in the woods, wherever you might be, directionally, you have more wrong choices than right ones. There's a straight line between you and where you want to go, And then there's 360 degrees of wrong choices. So when we don't have that basic knowledge of who Jesus is and what it's like to follow him, our actions will be inferior. 
They may not be wholly wrong, but they're not going to be the straight line that Jesus has for us. Most of our lives are weaving back and forth. You know, like I said about jobs, I've had a lot of different jobs since I became an adult. None of them are what I, you know, most of them are not what I thought I would be doing. Somehow, sometimes that's how God leads us. We have things to learn in that. But when we're in that spot where we don't know which way is the right way to go, most of our choices are wrong. We have to find the one that's right to follow in Jesus. You know, I told you about my Uncle Terry when we got started. Um, They didn't really realize that anything was wrong with him until he got to the age that he should have been starting to walk, and he just wasn't. And that's when they really discovered what was wrong. But, you know, he saw people walking. You know, the vast majority of people around him were people who walked. He had seen it. He understood it. If you had asked him what is walking, he could have described it. But he had no memory of what it was like to stand on his own two feet. He had no memory of what it felt like to have his body weight pressing down on his feet. But here's what he did. Years ago, that we went ahead and put the grave marker where he was going to be buried. That's one of those things my family does. You know, even if you're not sick, we go ahead and put a grave marker up. We'll use it eventually. And y'all think I'm a, a planner. Um, so they, they put this marker there, and I've seen it for years. Um, on there it has his name, has the date of his birth, and it had a blank spot where they were going to put the date of his death. And he had one thing written on there. One day I will walk. You get that? He knew. He knew what walking was, and he knew that a time was going to come where he would walk. He knew that there was something better than sitting in a bed or sitting in a wheelchair and having to have people take care of you. He knew that, even though he had not experienced it. Do you see that? This life can be really hard. But for people who are believers, we can know that there is that refreshing that restoration that is coming. You know, when when I read this and I see these people who acted in ignorance, you know what I, I think? I don't want to be ignorant of Jesus. I just don't. You know, I, I've I've been a believer for over twenty years now, twenty five years, and I've learned a lot. You know, I went to a Bible college, took some good classes. I tell you, in the, in the eight years we've been a part of this church, it's pushed me into the Word more than, than most of the years before that. But I don't want to be ignorant of Jesus. I want to know more than just the data. The data is helpful. The knowledge, that kind of knowledge is helpful. But I want to follow Him, and I want to know Him. I want to know him more than just as a historical figure. I want to know him as a person, a living person. And so that's what's driving me now. And I hope that it drives you to know Jesus that. To really seek him out. 
to dig into the word, to dig into those times of prayer, to dig into those times where with fasting you, you control your bodily desires to get closer to Jesus. Because if you can control your desire to eat, which is one of the most basic things that we have, you can control, you can learn to control a lot of your other desires that are sinful, that have good ways that they can be fulfilled, but they also have bad ways. Those are the things that I'm seeking and that I hope all of us are seeking and that we would want to know Jesus. We, we say Jesus is our one hope. Well, let's make sure that he is our one hope.